And so we're looking at this morning an interesting book because it's only one chapter. It's the shortest letter of Paul in the New Testament. There's only one chapter, 25 verses. And what's interesting about it is a little context on it is it's not only a, I call it a postcard from Paul because it's so small, but also it's a postcard on forgiveness. Here's the context of this letter. Paul was in prison. It's a prison epistle. He was in prison and he was in prison in Rome. And while he's in prison in Rome, he had a serendipity uh, uh, occurrence. You know what serendipity is? Serendipity is a chance encounter to, that leads to something beneficial. I, I, if, you're, if you're a Christian, you probably know what I'm talking about. I call them two divine appointments, <clears throat> where just there's a chance occurrence of meeting someone, and then that, all of a sudden it's beneficial because of this person that you've met. I've had multitudes of those throughout my life. Uh, probably one of the greatest serendipity events I ever had was walking into my systematic theology class in 1985, Fuller Theological Seminary, and seeing this five foot eleven, blonde-haired Dutch girl, and I said, I'm going to meet her. Her name was Heidi Woutstra, who is now Heidi Hoppy. Serendipity, uh, one of those chance encounters that was definitely beneficial. Uh, I, had, I had another uh, serendipity encounter this week. Earlier in the week, I was on, 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 on my day off, I was playing golf, and I, I got to put it with this threesome, and there was a couple in this threesome uh, that was uh, playing in our, in our foursome because I was by myself, and I started talking to the couple and everything else, and she said she was uh, born in Chicago, and she was originally from Chicago. And I go, really, Chicago? That's where I'm from. I go, where did you live in Chicago? And she goes, Oak Park, Illinois. That's where I grew up. And I'm going, are you serious? We started talking and stuff, and she said, yeah, my mom, before she met my dad, my mom was um, actually a waitress in one of the Oak Park restaurants and bar and restaurants or whatever, and she, uh, she actually dated uh, Al Capone's brother. I'm going, that's dangerous company right there. I go, I don't know if I want to keep golfing with you. But anyways, uh, serendipity encounter, that's what Paul had when he was in this prison in Rome. Why? Because he met this guy by the name of Onesimus. We'll see that in this letter. Onesimus was a runaway slave, and not only a runaway slave, but was probably in prison with Paul in Rome because of stuff he probably did in Rome. But, he's a, but Paul started talking to this Onesimus, this runaway slave, and he found out that this runaway slave was actually from Colossae, which was a thousand miles from Rome. And so Paul found out that he was from Colossae, and I'm sure Paul asked him, well, um, you know, I started a church in Colossae. And you know what the slave probably told Paul at this point was, he said, yeah, my slave owner, his name is Philemon. And Paul said, Philemon, that's where the church in Colossae meets, in his home. And so Paul, in this letter, what he's going to do is he's going to share about how he led Onesimus to Christ, and then he's going to send Onesimus a thousand miles back to Colossae to be a runaway slave that's coming home to make amends with his owner and make things right. Because we're going to see from the letter also, he probably stole from his owner also. And so what Paul is going to plead for Philemon, who's the slave owner, is forgive this guy, because now he's a brother in Christ. Let it go. Don't hold this against him. And there's a plea for forgiveness in this letter. Now you're saying, what in the world does this have to do with us today in 2020 in the United States? We don't have slavery here. What does this have to do with us? Well, if you're a human being that has relationships, you've probably had some people steal from you. You've probably had some people run out on you. You've probably had some people betray you. 
And this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for us, will help us today to learn a little bit more about forgiveness and letting go and showing grace toward those, towards those who have hurt us. And we're going to end the letter after we're done going through the letter verse by verse. I'm going to give you some tools at the end of this letter that will help you, biblical tools that will help you forgive and let go and get beyond anger and bitterness or unforgiveness. So let's jump in. You ready, church? All right, Philemon, if you're there, say amen. You find it by going to Hebrews and taking a left. It's right before Hebrews. So Philemon, chapter 1, verse 1, says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you, <clears throat> grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, typical Pauline greeting always starts out with his name. It's, it's probably on a scroll. So for them to see at the top of the scroll, this is who it's from. It's from Paul. And notice what Paul describes himself as. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. What that means, he doesn't say, I'm an apostle. I'm a this, I'm a that. He says, I'm a prisoner. And notice, he's in Roman prison, but who's he a prisoner of? Christ Jesus. Because Jesus had him in that prison for a purpose and a plan. And part of the purpose and plan was to lead this Onesimus to Christ. Now I want you to see this because whenever you're in a such situation that isn't the best of circumstances, God has a purpose and a plan for those circumstances too. And some of you might feel like you're in prison. You're in prison to your circumstances. You're in prison to a health issue. You're in prison to a job that you don't like. Listen, God's got a purpose and a plan for wherever you're at. And Paul is living out his words here and saying, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus by saying, hey, God causes all things, all things to work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I love Paul because we see from the book of Philippians, another prison epistle, when he's in Rome, he leads praetorium guards that are chained to him to Christ, so much so that the whole palace of Rome is being filled with the gospel because Paul was in prison. You see how he, caught, he had this perspective? If God's got me here, i got a captive audience, I'm going to lead some people to Jesus. And you know what, church? One of the ways life could always be productive and constructive is we have a perspective that no matter what circumstances we face, God's got a purpose and God's got a plan. And his plans for us are not for calamity but for welfare to give us a future and a hope. we got to trust that. And I'm right there with you because I don't like bad circumstances. But I'm learning those circumstances are there because I need to consider it all joy, my brethren, when I encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of my faith produces endurance, and endurance will have a perfect result. I'll be more mature and complete as I pass the test and I trust Christ for those trials. Amen? A prisoner of Christ Jesus, not of Rome, of Christ Jesus. And Timothy, our brother, notice too, he calls Philemon a beloved brother and fellow worker. Interesting. Beloved brother, but also a fellow worker. When you enter God's family, you enter into the family of God. You're an adopted son or daughter, and you're a beloved brother or sister in Christ. You enter God's family, and it's wonderful because we have a whole new family, a spiritual family we're now a part of, but we're also, like, like, like this, we're fellow workers. The, the, the natural progression, you enter God's family, you become a beloved brother or sister, and then you start getting busy and serving God. Every single person in this church 
has a spiritual gift, and you're called to use it for the kingdom of God. We're going to see in one of these verses, we're called to be useful for God's kingdom, and we need to be using our gifts as workers for Christ. Jesus put it this way, I'm busy about my Father's business. And we're to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing our toil in the Lord is not in vain. Amen? And also it's interesting here, he he mentions to Aphia, the church in Colossae, again in Philemon's home, but it's also addressed to Aphia, our sister. Many scholars believe that Aphia is probably Philemon's wife. Into Archippus, our fellow soldiers, many scholars believe Archippus could be Philemon's son. And notice, the son here is a Christian too, is a fellow soldier. That's another thing we are as Christians. We're not only workers, we're not only part of God's family, but we're soldiers. You're not, as Christians, you're not here on vacation for 70, 80 years. You're in a war. And you're supposed to put on the full armor of God and go to war. This is a sword of the Spirit. We're going to be using the Word of God in this world because we're at war. And by the way, a soldier always keeps his sword by him. You know, it's important to be in the Word and stay in the Word because we're in a war. We're fellow soldiers along with Philemon and Archippus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this typical Pauline greeting, you always see, again, I'll reiterate this, you never see peace and grace because before you can have God's peace, you've got to have God's grace. Grace is undeserved merit and favor, peace, serenity of soul. And what happens when you enter a grace relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you're given forgiveness, you're given grace, and then you're given peace. The peace of God which surpasses all human understanding then starts guarding your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And there's a serenity in your heart because you have God's grace. But notice the source of grace and peace. It's not just God the Father. Who else is it? Jesus Christ. That's a clear statement to Jesus' deity, by the way, because you're not going to have God's grace and God's peace apart from Jesus Christ, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And the source for grace, the source of peace is God the Father, but it's also Christ Jesus, his Son, because he's God also. He's a part of the Trinity And so it's grace to you and peace, source of grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we move from Paul being a prisoner and greeting now to the prayer of Paul for Philemon. He says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now I want you to see that. Philemon had a love for Jesus, but he also had a love for the followers of Jesus. Do you know the two go hand in hand? If you really love Jesus, you're going to love his people. Why? Because those people are part of your family now. And they're a part of your spiritual family, and you should love them as brothers and sisters in Christ. I love 1 John 4, 7 and 8. It says this. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is what? Born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. And then 1 John four nineteen says, we love because he first loved us. And if you're being loved by God in that love relationship with God, there'll be a flow of his love through you to other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's evidence that you really know God and love God because you love God's people. I remember when I first came to Christ, got involved with these high school students, about 100 high school students on fire for Christ in our high school. And one of the things is they enveloped me in their love. I'd never been loved like that before. They didn't want anything from me. They just wanted to love me. 
and they accepted me unconditionally. And that sealed the deal for me for my Christianity. I go, this is cool. I want to be a part of this group because they love me. And then I remember after about six months after becoming a Christian, I realized I love these people too. They're like family to me. Actually, I was closer at that time to these Christians that was a part of their fellowship than a lot of my earthly family because of the bond we had in Christ. Love for Jesus will produce a love for brothers and sisters in Christ. They go hand in hand. They really do. And that's what he's talking about here, the love that Philemon had and the faith. Not only the love towards Jesus, but towards all the saints. And then in verse 6, he says, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is yours for Christ's sake. For I've come to have much joy and comfort in your, notice, love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Now, I want you to see, one of the ways the hearts of the saints were refreshed by Philemon in Colossae is he opened up his home. The church met in in his house, it says. And one of the ways you could refresh saints in Jesus is open up your home. Have people over for some dinner. Have some people over just to hang out, maybe have coffee. As we open up our homes, we're refreshing those that we're blessing with our hospitality. That's an important ministry. One of the highlights for me of all three church starts we did, we started a church in San Diego, a church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, a church here, is we started all three churches in our home. And some of the highlights of, of my ministry is some of the ministry that happened in the Hoppy House as we started these churches. I remember we started the church in Oshkosh uh, with college students because it was a U- University of Wisconsin uh, college town that we were starting the church in, and we just opened up our home on Sunday nights. We studied the book of Revelation before we even started Sunday morning services with these college students, and then we guaranteed them a home-cooked meal. Within six weeks, we were up to 50 college students for dinner every Sunday night. We had kids up the hallway, stairs, out in the hallway, in the kitchen, in the living room, and we were doing studying the book of Revelation. It was awesome. I remember some of the worship with these 50-plus college students in our house was just ecstatic. Like we were coming into the throne room of God as these on-fire college students had good eating from Heidi Hoppy, and then we worshiped. had a piano in that living room, and we worshiped with, with, with some passion with these college students. And you know, a lot of those college students not only um, <clears throat> came to Christ, but they were discipled, and a lot of them are doing ministry now. It's awesome. Their hearts were refreshed by just having a home-cooked meal and having a place, a, a house on campus they could go to and be blessed and ministered uh, uh, by us. And it was wonderful. I loved it. I remember starting the church here. Started with a Bible study in our home in Westbrook uh, subdivision here in Lexington. I remember, I remember getting in trouble because we started the Bible study and we'd have all these people coming and parking on the street. It was a brand new subdivision. Everybody was complaining about the Hoppy House having all these cars parked on the street. You know, we did it anyways. And we had a great Bible study and a great start to the church. And then I remember doing worship team practice on our back porch. And we didn't have any place to do worship team practice because we were running a banquet hall on Sunday morning. So we had drums on the back porch. And we had Becky Henneberry and our worship people. And we're doing practice on the back porch in our subdivision. It's awesome. So one of the ways you could refresh the hearts of the saints, open up your house. Show some hospitality. See what God does with that. So now let's move from the prayer to the plea. Verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ in order to, uh, for you to do what is proper, yet for, your, for love's sake, here it is. Paul says to Philemon, I rather appeal to you, since I'm such a person as Paul the aged. NIV version says, I'm an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now Paul's going to put 
the press on Philemon to forgive this slave. He's saying, first of all, man, I'm an old man in prison, so listen to me. I appeal to you for this. And I appeal, verse 10, to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I begotten in my imprisonment. You see what Paul's saying there? This is a son in the faith now. I had the privilege of leading the slave to Christ. He's a brother in Christ now. Who formerly, notice verse 11, this Onesimus formerly was useless to you, but now he's useful both to you and to me. Now that's a plan of words. Why? Because Onesimus, his name meant useful. But before he came to Christ, he was useless. Why? Because he was immoral. He was ripping his own owner off. He was running out on him. He's doing wrong things. But then Paul's saying, now he's come to Christ and he's going to live up to his name. He's going to be useful. Can anybody else here besides me relate to that? Remember how useless you were before Christ? I remember. I remember uh, living immoral. I remember getting drunk on a regular basis. I remember doing stuff I shouldn't do, lying and stealing, uh, doing stuff that uh, made my life useless. And the wonderful news is you come to Christ, you go from being useless to being useful. You come from being in a place where you were just disenfranchised from God, you were engaged in all kinds of evil deeds and doing wrong stuff, living in darkness, useless. And now you're an Onesimus if you're a Christian. You're useful. And now you can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. Now God can use you and he could use me to shine light into darkness. Now God can use you and he could use me to share his word with people that needs, need words of eternal life. Now God can use you and he could use me to be using our gifts in such a way that we're going to make a difference for the kingdom here in the world. And every single person in this room has spiritual gifts and has a calling on your life to be useful in some way with the gifts that God has given you. It's all for the common good is what spiritual gifts are for. And every believer has a spiritual gift. And you could be an Onesimus and you could be useful. But you got to be steadfast. You got to be immovable. You got to keep pressing on to the upward call that God has for your life because he's got a purpose and a plan for every believer in this room to be an Onesimus. Can I get an amen to that? God wants to use you, man. And we only have one life to live. And it'll soon be passed. And only what you do for Christ is going to last. So let's be useful. Let's be Onesimuses. And that's the plan of words he says. He, this guy's useful now. He's living up to his name. And I'll go, going back to our scripture, he says, verse 12, I've sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I don't want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion or by your own free will. For perhaps... He was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. Notice, he's a beloved brother now, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the, in the Lord? Now, here's what he's saying. I'm pleading for you to show love and forgive him. You know why? Because the runaway slaves in that culture, the Roman law gave this slave owner the permission when Onesimus comes back to kill him. 
Because Roman law, if you had a runaway slave and you got a hold of that runaway slave again, you could, you could execute them and not have any legal difficulty with that whatsoever. And, if they, and in that culture also, if they didn't execute a runaway slave, they'd do other things. They'd torture them. They'd even brand them. This is terrible, but a lot of the masters in that culture where the runaway slave would take a branding iron and put a big F on the guy's uh, forehead that was a runaway slave because it was a future tavas fugitive, and then live with that the rest of their life. And Paul's saying, hey, I plead with you now. Don't do that to this brother in Christ. Forgive him. Show love for love's sake. And then he says this, going on, verse 17, if then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, I'll repay, not to mention you, that you owe to me, even your own self as well. You see what Paul's kind of putting in the little press right there? He says, hey, you'd be lost and going to hell if it wasn't for me. And so I'm pleading for you to show forgiveness to this brother in Christ now. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, a couple things I want you to see there. First of all, go back to the top of what we just read there. It says this. If uh, for perhaps he, he was for this reason separated for you for a while, that you'd have him back forever. What he's saying here is, is this: He's saying maybe there was God's sovereignty and purpose in this, in regards to him even being a runaway slave, so that I could lead him to Christ and then send him back to you as a brother in Christ. I was listening to Chuck Smith on this, the founder of Calvary Chapel, and he said that when he was first starting Calvary Chapel in 1965. It was like the whole country was tilted to California. And all these young people, teenagers, were all running away from Illinois and uh, Oklahoma and other Midwest states, and they were all running away from their family, and they were running to Southern California where the beaches were beautiful and the sun was warm, and they were runaway kids. And you know what? Pastor Chuck had the opportunity to lead thousands of those kids to Christ. And he, and he would get phone calls from parents back in the Midwest, wherever these runaway kids came from. And these kids were, were getting involved in drugs. They were getting involved in just being homeless. And Calvary Chapel opened their doors to these young kids that were runaways. And they were just like this runaway slave. They were runaway from their family. And they became brothers and sisters in Christ. And not only that, they got discipled in God's Word at Calvary Chapel. And now many of the Calvary chapels, especially in Southern California. There's about 250 Calvary chapels just in Southern California, and many of them are pastored by these runaway kids because they got discipled in God's Word. And so that's kind of what Paul's saying about Onesimus. Maybe God had a purpose and a plan to let him run away so that he could get saved here, and then we could send him back as a servant for Christ to the church there in Colossae. But I want you to see something else there in the Scripture we just read. Paul has the Spirit of Christ. Because he's saying here to this slave owner, hey, when you, when, if, he's, if he's wronged you, and if he has stolen from you, and if he's run out with your stuff, hey, whatever he owes you, put it on my account. Charge it to my account. Is that the spirit of Christ or not? Because what did Jesus do on the cross? He said to the Father in heaven, this sinner... Even though he's wronged you, God, with his sin, because he's believed in me, charge it to my account. Charge it to the account where I said, paid in full, 
it is finished. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible says even though your sin is a scarlet, if you believe in Christ, even though your sin is a scarlet, you're white as snow. That's amazing. The Bible says that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Amazing. Amazing. When I think about that, 1 John chapter 2, it says that Jesus Christ, if you've believed in him and he's trusted him as your Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ is your advocate. In the original language, the word advocate, it means attorney, literally lawyer. And Jesus is the best lawyer you'll ever have. Because verse 2 says that he is our propitiation. That's a theological term that means he is now the, the payment for the righteous requirement of a holy God. He, he satisfies the righteous requirements of a holy God. You know what that means? It means that when John Hoppy dies, I'm going to face a holy God who's, who's holy, holy, holy. And Jesus Christ is going to stand in front of me and he's going to be my attorney. And he's going to say to that holy God, because John Hoppy trusted me as his Savior and Lord, Father, don't judge John Hoppy on what he's done and the sin he's done. Judge him for what I've done for him. Nail-pierced hands. Father, charge to my account his sin. And then I'm going to hear those words. Enter now into the joy of your master. And it's not because of anything I've done. It's because of what Jesus did for me. Amen? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a bunch of wretches like us. <laughs> we once were lost, but now we're found. We once were blind, but now we see. And I don't know about you, but the more I understand God's grace for me, and the more I see Jesus saying, charge John Hoppy's sin to me and what I did for him on the cross, that doesn't give me a license for sin. It gives me a motivation to serve Christ and live for him. You know you've really encountered God's grace and it's been charged to his account when you have a life that says, man, I just want to live for Jesus now because of what he did for me. I don't want to be conformed to this world anymore. I want to be transformed. I want to be living a holy sacrifice because he was a sacrifice for me. Do you see that? Very important we see what Jesus did when he said, charge to my account, Father, his sin or her sin. Let's close it up now. Verse 22, it says, at the same time, also prepare me a lodging, Paul says to Philemon. In other words, I hope that through your prayers I'll be given to you. Hopefully I'll get out of prison, prepare a room for me. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. Epaphras was from Colossae, presently with Paul in Rome. As do Mark, Mark's with Paul also. Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. Aristarchus, Demas, Demas we're going to see in 2 Timothy, or we saw in 2 Timothy, actually deserted Paul at the end of his life, but was on his team at this point. Luke, my fellow worker, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and also wrote the book of Acts. And notice how Paul ends this letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, what? Be with your spirit. Notice this book on forgiveness begins with grace and it ends with grace. Book ends. 
It starts talking about God's undeserved merit and favor towards us, and it ends talking about God's undeserved merit. And it also says, and may that grace, may that grace be with your spirit. And may that grace be with our spirits also. And I wanted to close this time of studying about forgiveness and how Paul's pleading for forgiveness from the slave owner by, by going back to us. How about you? Is there someone in your life you need to forgive? Is there someone that has betrayed you? Is there someone that has, has, has deserted you? Is there someone that has hurt you? Is there someone that you haven't shown forgiveness towards? Is there someone that you still in your heart have a little bitterness towards? Is there someone that, you, if they were walking down the street and you were walking on the same sidewalk, you would go to the other side of the street maybe so you wouldn't even have to see them because you can't stand them still? Is there someone you need to let go of? unforgiveness and bitterness towards this morning. I'm going to give you three tools this morning that help you. This is important. It's very important because God doesn't want us to be an unforgiving people. God wants us to be a people that have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with our spirits. So three, three things that will help you with this, of letting go, of forgiving, of living in mercy and grace instead of unforgiveness and bitterness. Number one, Remember how much God has forgiven you. The Bible says God has made from you as far as the east is from the west your sins are that far away because of what God has done because of his grace towards you. And if you need to forgive someone, the first thing that has to be in place if you're going to forgive someone is you need to realize how much God has forgiven you. One time Peter asked uh, Jesus, he said, Master, how many times should I forgive somebody? <clears throat> Up to seven times? Now, that was generous on Peter's part, or he thought it was, because, because the rabbis of that day said, you only need to forgive someone who's wronged you three times, and then you can have nothing to do with them after that. And Peter says, how about seven times? Is that how many times we're supposed to forgive somebody? That's more than twice what the rabbis are saying. You know, remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, no, 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 not seven times. Seventy times, seven times you could forgive. Now, Paul, or Jesus knew that P, uh, Peter was an uneducated fisherman, and he couldn't count that high. And he's saying, you're to forgive, you're to forgive, you're to forgive, you're to forgive, you're to forgive until you lose count. And then he gives a parable, Matthew chapter 18. He said, there's this king, that this, this king that had all these slaves, and this one slave literally owed him 10,000 talents. That's present-day millions of dollars. And he was about to throw this slave in a debtor's prison, and the slave begged for forgiveness. And you know what? That king said, you're forgiven. The millions of dollars you owe, you're forgiven. Do you remember the parable? What did that slave do? He went out and grabbed a fellow slave that owed him just a small, small percentage of that kind of money, just a penance of what he owed, uh, just a little tiny piece of what he owed that king. And he grabbed him and said, you owe me this money. And then the, the slave said, I can't pay you back. And he said, well, he threw him in debtor's prison. And then the king found out about that. And the king basically said, how dare you throw this slave in prison after I've forgiven you of millions and millions of dollars, 10,000 talents. And he took that slave and then threw him in prison too. I think some of you, I think I've, I've, I've been there too, where I've been in prison myself. I've been thrown in prison because of my bitterness, 
because of my unforgiveness, because of showing not grace to somebody, but bitterness to somebody. Hey, you know what happens when you show bitterness instead of forgiveness to somebody? You want to give that person that hurts you, you want to give them poison, but you're drinking the poison yourself, and it's poisoning you. So remember, if you want to be a forgiving person, remember how much God has forgiven you as your king. And he tells us to pray this prayer on a daily basis. We're supposed to pray. I think the Lord's Prayer is a good thing to pray on a daily basis. And remember in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, he said, pray this way, Christians. Father, forgive us our debts as what? As we forgive our debtors. You see the tie there? Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Just as God forgives us, Father, Help us to forgive others. Remember how much God's forgiven you. It'll help you forgive others. Second thing, very important, very important. Forgiveness is not a suggestion. It's a command. Ephesians 4.32, listen to this. It says, command, imperative in the Greek. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. See the relation again between God's forgiveness and our forgiveness? But that is not a suggestion right there. That's a command. We're commanded to forgive others just as God has forgiven us. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. We need to understand that. This is not something that we have an option for if we're obeying Christ. If we're obeying Christ, we are going to be a forgiving people. Why? Because it's a part of living in love. Do you know that? The Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 5, it says, it says right there, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. 1 Peter 4, 8 puts it this way. It says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. If you're living in love, you're going to show grace and forgiveness. You're going to cover this sin, and you're not going to rehearse it. You're going to release it. Do you see that? You're going to let it go. And a part of living in love is you let go of people that have hurt you instead of holding them in your bitterness and your anger and your unforgiveness. Very important. Hmm. Hebrews 12. I love these verses on this. It's also a command. It says, Hebrews 12, 14 and 15, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. There's the grace of God again. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many may be defiled. You know what that scripture is saying? Is if you don't exercise grace and forgive those that have hurt you, what you're doing is you're defiling yourself, you're bringing dirt into your own heart, and you're defiling your relationship with God. Better to, to listen to the command, forgive. And again, a forgiven people should be a forgiving people. Here's the last thing. This is very important. Number one, remember how much God's forgiven you. Number two, realize it's not a suggestion, it's a command. It's a part of living in love. And the last thing, if we're going to be a forgiving people and let go of things, we got we got to choose. we got to make a decision. we got to say in our will, I will forgive. I'm going to let this person off the hook. I'm not going to hold it against them anymore. I'm going to forgive them and I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to choose. My dad was a good dad to me. My dad um, was a, one of my best friends growing up. He always had my back. He always, man, he was always let me know how proud he was of me. He always, he, w- he went to all my sporting events religiously. He was at everything I did. He was there for me. 
I always knew that, man, my, if one of my greatest supporters in my life as I was growing up was my dad. I love my dad. And he was smart. I and mean, he had a business that was just successful, everything else. But my dad had a drinking problem. And that drinking problem got to the point that after 30-some years of a drinking problem, it killed him. His liver went bad. He got a pneumonia. And just unexpectedly, it was just like a shock. I didn't even see it coming because I didn't know he had a bad liver. And within two days of going back to Chicago after he got sick, he was gone. It broke my heart. And then after I lost him suddenly like that, I went through that whole mourning process, grief, those stages of grief and everything. And you know what happened in the middle of the grief of losing my dad? I got angry. I got mad. I got angry because my dad's dad, my grandpa, who he had his genes, lived till he was 90 years old. My dad died when he was 67. I got angry. I got bitter, too, because I was thinking, you know, my dad's not going to see my kids grow up, and he's not going to see my kids become responsible, Christian, working families, and he's not going to see them have kids, and he's not going to be a part of that like my grandpa was. I got mad. And then I got angry about my dad making personal choices about, you know, drinking like that and killing himself through the, through the alcohol. Man, I was mad. So I had one of those Jacob moments with God where I was praying, and I was like, God, I'm angry at my dad, and, you know, he's gone, and I can't, you know, just that unforgiveness and that bitterness was just gripping, defiling my heart. The Lord spoke to me. The Lord told me, he said, you need to forgive your dad. And I said, Lord, I'm angry. He said, you need to forgive your dad. And then he said to me, he said, and you need to remember the best and forgive the rest. Let it go. And that was a turning point with me, because I did. So that's it. I'm just going to remember the best. I'm going to forgive the rest. I remember the way that he, even when I was in seminary, he provided financial support to me. Even though he didn't want me to go to seminary, he wanted me to take over his real estate company, he was there for me. I remember the way that he, he, uh, he would wake me up whenever I'd come home at 6 o'clock in the morning. He would take me to his handball group, and he'd get me to get on the handball court and play handball with him. I remember the way that he would put his arm around me after a sporting event and say, man, you did great. I'm proud of you, son. Remember the best and forgive the rest. And I think there's some people here this morning, and that's a word for you too. There's some people in your life that have hurt you in some way, some fashion, you know, run away in regards to, they didn't betray you somehow. You know what God's saying to you? He's saying, remember how much God's forgiven you. Make, because this is not a, a suggestion, this is a command, and the command is choose to forgive. And remember the best and forgive the rest. Amen? And you know, all throughout life, we, we, we were either a Paul, Onesimus, or, or, or a Philemon. A Philemon. Do you know that? You know that oftentimes we're going to have opportunities within our families to be a Paul. What was Paul in this situation? Paul was a peacemaker. He was trying to bring two parties together that were at odds, and he was pleading for forgiveness. And sometimes in our families, we're called to be Pauls. 
We're going to be in a situation where we see two family members or two people we care about fighting and at each other's throats, and we're called to be a Paul and be a peacemaker and help them come together and have peace and forgiveness. Sometimes we're going to be Onesimus. Sometimes we'll be like Onesimus, and we've wronged somebody, and God's calling us to make amends and go to that person and ask for forgiveness and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I've hurt you in this way. Forgive me, please. That's what Onesimus was doing, traveling a 1,000 miles, going into a risky situation to make amends with his owner. Sometimes we're going to be a Philemon, though, too. And I think a lot of times we're going to be like Philemon, and God is pleading with us to forgive as we've been forgiven. And so I want to encourage you this morning during the prayer time, do some business with God. Come before his throne of grace and let go. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. It's a choice you need to make to forgive as you've been forgiven. And God will bring healing from that. He'll get you out of the prison of bitterness. And he'll set you free from that.